Hi there and welcome to another Oslo podcast. My name's Todd Fraser and on this podcast series we interview leading clinicians, characters and troublemakers who are changing the face of clinical healthcare. On today's podcast I'll be chatting with Dr Adam Hollyoak. Adam is an emergency and intensive care specialist at the Townsville Hospital and also works for Lifelight doing pre-hospital and retrieval medicine. His medical interests include toxinology, trauma, coagulation in critical care, extracorporeal circulation, and pre-hospital and remote rural medicine. Adam joins me on the podcast today to talk about traumatic cardiac arrest. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Todd. Good to be chatting with you. Adam, one of your interest areas is in uh, the subject of traumatic cardiac arrest. How common is it and what are the outcomes like? Um, So it's interesting. One of the um, areas of medicine that we tend to have a fairly grim view on is traumatic cardiac arrest. And I guess that's because traditionally survival rates from traumatic cardiac arrest were thought to be quite low. Um, When we look at uh, the population that's affected by traumatic cardiac arrest, um, all comers cardiac arrest for whatever cause, medical or surgical, um, it's up to about sort of anywhere between 88 and 99% um, have traumatic, uh, have standard cardiac arrest. Probably the often quoted amount is about 5% of cardiac arrests are traumatic cardiac arrests. So a relatively small proportion of people actually suffering from cardiac arrest. However, that very small group of people can have um, a significantly better survival than is often often thought in the back of our minds when we think about this population group. So just thinking about those that have an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, about 11% of those, so all comers, um, will survive that cardiac arrest. However, when we think about that 5% of people that have a traumatic cardiac arrest, their survival rate in excess of doubles Um, and although there's actually a couple of new studies that are just coming out, it's at least 24% of people will survive from their traumatic cardiac arrest. Um, When we think of the the types of traumatic cardiac arrest, um, obviously survival around those changes. Um, When we look at blunt versus penetrating trauma, so blunt trauma has a relatively poor survival rate of about 8.5%. Whereas penetrating trauma, again, the survival rate doubles from that, getting up to about 16%. If they have some pre-hospital management, regardless of of what that is, we get a little bit of additional survival. Um, About 18% of these people will survive, so penetrating trauma with some pre-hospital management. However, if these people that suffer a traumatic cardiac arrest um, from penetrating trauma have signs of life on arrival of the medical team. Um, So signs of life on arrival, then suffering a cardiac arrest, their survival rate goes up to about 36%. So pretty phenomenal um, survival statistics there when you compare that back to all comers of about 11% survival rate. What's the rationale for that? Why is it that, um, is it just a duration phenomenon or are there other factors at play? So that's a very interesting question Um, and I guess no one is 100% sure why that difference exists. I guess it's when we look at what the underlying causes are in um, traumatic cardiac arrest, what we tend to see is the most common cause is things that are readily reversible, so hypovolemia, usually due to to hemorrhage and blood loss that way, 
or respiratory failure due to tension pneumothorax. Um, similarly, tension pneumothorax also can cause um, distributive or obstructive shock, sorry, um, from cardiac tamponade or just the tension pneumothorax itself um, causing a, a decrease in venous return to the heart. So all of these things are readily reversible. Um, and these tend to occur in people that don't have um, a degree of medical comorbidities associated with them, whereas medical cardiac arrest, there's a lot of comorbid conditions pre-existent in the particular patient, and that probably affects a, a poorer outcome in this population group. Adam, you mentioned that there are some interventions that uh, can be readily um, implemented and, and very effective. What sort of interventions can make a difference to the outcome of patients with traumatic cardiac arrest? So I think the, the key mantra is treat the reversible causes and treat them quickly and definitively. And so in traumatic cardiac arrest, the first thing to do is open, control and protect the airway. So someone that's suffered a traumatic cardiac arrest, early intubation is very important. Provide oxygen through that open airway um, and mechanically ventilate them as required in a safe, um, you know, limited tidal volume manner. Then seeking um, causes of obstructive shock, so aggressively seeking and treating tension pneumothorax, um, and so doing that either with a finger or tube thoracostomy. And then, again, the second common cause of obstructive shock in traumatic cardiac arrest is seeking and treating pericardial tamponade. And that's where people talk about a resuscitative thoracotomy, um, and these are often thought of quite a sexy procedure. Realistically, the main pathology that we are looking to treat with that, um, whether this is pre-hospital or within the emergency department, is pericardial tamponade. And so opening up the chest, exposing the heart, opening the pericardium and relieving the tamponade. And going through that sort of mantra um, will help reverse traumatic cardiac arrest. In line with that, um, and this is sort of the mantra of any traumatic um, injury, is to find the bleeding and stop the bleeding. Um, given that, as we said before, hypovolemia from hemorrhagic blood loss is one of the most common causes of pardon me, death in traumatic cardiac arrest, we need to find where that bleeding is coming from and arrest that bleeding. And when we do stop that bleeding, we need to replace the lost blood with like, and so, you know, early blood product re replacement rather than use of crystalloid. Who should be doing these sorts of interventions, Adam? Um, I mean, the, the concept of opening an airway and replacing fluids is, is fine uh, for many of us working in a pre-hospital or emergency environment, but who should be doing things like resuscitative uh, thoracotomies? So it's interesting. There's, that, that question hasn't been directly answered. Um, there's not been a randomised control trial done of paramedics versus doctors doing resuscitative thoracotomy. Um, pretty much the resuscitative thoracotomy seems to be in the domain of either the emergency physician or pre-hospital physician um, or the cardiothoracic surgeon. 
And there doesn't seem to be any particular um, signal in the limited literature that there is, whether it's better that these be done by a cardiothoracic surgeon or a, an emergency or pre-hospital physician. Certainly, the data does reflect that you know regular training and rehearsal for this um, will help improve the outcomes. But it largely seems to be that the most difficult point of doing the resuscitative thoracotomy is to actually make the decision to perform the thoracotomy. Once you get to that point, the actual procedure itself is not difficult or complicated, um, particularly if it's been practiced before on models or in a simulated environment. Um, but getting in quickly, making the decision, getting into the chest, and as I said, the main pathology that we're looking for is pericardial tamponade. There are lots of other things that can be done in the chest to arrest bleeding, and that's where probably there's a role for the cardiothoracic surgeon in a surgical centre to be intervening. But for most cases, it's opening up the pericardium and releasing tamponade. And so I think what the literature would reflect is this can certainly be done quickly and reliably either in a pre-hospital or emergency department environment by an appropriately trained clinician. Adam, when we're confronted with a patient who's in traumatic cardiac arrest, are there any specific groups that will respond better than others? So interestingly enough, when we, we look at the literature around cardiac arrest, usually older age is not uh, not is, is poorly prognostic. Um, interestingly, in the group of patients that suffer traumatic cardiac arrest, um, age may not be so predictive. And so deciding not to proceed in resuscitating someone because they're older in age um, doesn't seem to be the right uh, road to take in this group of individuals. And so long as it's an actual traumatic cause, um, age is, is not a barrier to survival in this particular subset of the population that suffer a traumatic cardiac arrest. I'll just caution there, though, that um, always be mindful that just because someone is in cardiac arrest and there has been trauma, that it may actually be an underlying medical cause of cardiac arrest. For example, a low-speed seeming um, motor vehicle accident into a pole with minimal intrusion into the vehicle the cause of the arrest may not be traumatic, although there's trauma involved. It may have been a primary medical cardiac arrest that's resulted in a trauma. So in the elderly population, always be mindful of that, and that may affect a poorer outcome in that population. However, if it is a truly traumatic cardiac arrest, age doesn't seem to be a barrier to, to survival and meaningful recovery. Um, one of the, uh, I guess, important differentiating factors is the initial presenting rhythm. Um, and it's a really important point to make a difference between PEA, so pulseless electrical activity, and EMD, electromechanical dissociation. And people often use these terms interchangeably in the general medical environment, but they are distinctly different pathologies. And these have these portend either a better or worse outcome from traumatic cardiac arrest. So what's the difference? Well, pulseless electrical activity has a heart that is actually contracting still, um, but because of hypovolemia or other pathology, there's not enough blood or volume to push around the body and to create an actual pulse that's palpable or detectable by an arterial line. So these populations, these patients have a very good outcome um, because once the bleeding is arrested and the blood volume is replaced or the obstructive shock is treated, the heart will very quickly 
be effective again. So it's not a true cardiac arrest or cessation of cardiac activity as opposed to electromechanical dissociation where there may still be firing of the electrical pathways in the heart but there's no actual contraction of the heart and so these may have had a direct myocardial trauma or otherwise but the heart itself is stopped beating and so their prognosis is um, almost overwhelmingly grim and that provides a role for early echocardiography in these sort of patients. So getting the echo probe on earlier in traumatic cardiac arrest can certainly help differentiate the population that may have a good outcome or it might be more worthwhile ceasing resuscitation early. Adam, aside from some of these um, interventions that we've talked about, including a thoracotomy and uh, 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 you know, um, decompressing a pneumothorax, is there any other difference between the management of a standard um, cardiac arrest and a traumatic cardiac arrest? I guess one of the, the key things um, to be mindful of in the traumatic cardiac arrest um, in, in the differences in the resuscitation is the role of chest compressions. Um, certainly in medical cardiac arrest, um, early basic life support and access to defibrillation um, affect a positive outcome. In traumatic cardiac arrest, the role of chest compressions needs to be de-emphasized. So not saying that we shouldn't ever do them, but primarily paying attention to those reversible causes that we talked about before and de-emphasizing the role of chest compressions. And certainly there's some evidence in the literature to suggest that traumatic cardiac arrest patients that get chest compressions do worse overall. Um, now that's difficult to tease out exactly why and is it cause and effect or just relational that someone that's had a, you know, a worse traumatic cardiac arrest is more likely to get chest compressions or whether it's due to early bystander responses. It's, it's difficult to say. But certainly what we do know is if the patient does have cardiac tamponade, that providing chest compressions actually negatively affects the pathophysiology and negatively affects venous return to the heart and cardiac outcome output, sorry, um, and so should be de-emphasised. However, um, you know, a bystander on scene should commence chest compressions until medical assistance arrives to, as I said, go through that algorithm of treating the reversible causes. Another thing that's, uh, I guess, a controversial role um, is whether vasopressors or inotropes have a role in traumatic cardiac arrest. Um, again, in the literature, there's a signal that says there is worst outcomes um, when vasopressors or inotropes are, are used in traumatic cardiac arrest. Again, it's difficult to say whether this is, is cause and effect or not, um, and certainly, as we said, reversible causes need to be treated, and so if the patient is hypovolemic, using vasopressors or inotropes to make an empty heart pump more is only going to increase the myocardial oxygen demand and actually not provide perfusion to tissues. And so making sure that the patient is adequately volume resuscitated is the key message in traumatic cardiac arrest. However, if they are or they've also got concomitant neurogenic shock, then there may be a role for vasopressors or inotropes um, to help support the circulation once they're fully resuscitated. Adam, just in summary, if you're confronted with um, a patient with uh, traumatic cardiac arrest, can you describe your approach to dealing with them to a, uh, for a, a paramedic or a, a doctor who's listening to this podcast? So my approach to the patient in traumatic cardiac arrest 
is first to consider the contraindications in their resuscitation. And so the literature certainly reflects that outcomes are related to time of cardiac arrest and also time to a surgical centre. So if this patient has arrested for longer than 10 minutes before medical assistance is on the scene, then resuscitative efforts should be stopped. Their outcomes are almost universally poor once CPR has been ongoing for longer than 10 minutes. If return of spontaneous circulation is gained, um, then ideally we want people to be within 10 minutes of a surgical centre to have um, ongoing intervention um, in their resuscitation. And so I would be considering how far away I was from a surgical centre again before proceeding. But if neither of those contraindications were met, my approach would be to work with my team, usually the paramedic, um, and divide the roles to quickly secure the airway provide oxygen and ventilate the patient at the same time as doing bilateral finger thoracostomies. If no return of spontaneous circulation is achieved at that point, I would put the echo probe on the heart to see whether there is actually pulseless electrical activity or electromechanical dissociation and whether or not there is signs of a pericardial tamponade. Echo in this sort of situation is not necessarily um, particularly sensitive for pericardial tamponade and so the absence of um, a pericardial effusion at this point would not dissuade me from going further so long as there was um, mechanical activity of the heart seen on echo. Then I'd proceed to extending the bilateral finger thoracostomies to an open clamshell thoracotomy where I would tent up the pericardium, open the pericardium and hopefully relieve any tamponade. In the pre-hospital environment, if that did not get return of spontaneous circulation, I would stop at that point in time. Um, however, if we then did have ROSC, I would move to getting the patient through to a hospital. I should also emphasise that whilst all of this was going along, I'd be pumping in um, O-negative packed red blood cells to help provide some volume resuscitation until we'd worked through all of those other steps in the algorithm and decided that the efforts were fruitless, unfortunately. Adam, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been a fantastic opportunity to talk to you about this. No worries at all, Todd. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. For more interesting interviews just like this one, visit our website, osla.force.com.